I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Read Like a Writer, the books podcast from Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate. Three independent publishers bringing the voices and the book recommendations of their authors to your ears. It's hosted by me, Anna Fielding, and in each episode we'll hear about the books closest to these authors' hearts, their latest projects, and learn a bit about their local indie bookshop too. We're actually not in the studio today, but in the beautiful medieval Dragon Hall in Norwich, which is the site of the National Centre for Writing. And we're here in order to pay a visit to Sarah Perry. Sarah's debut novel, After Me Comes the Flood, was published in 2014 to great critical acclaim. It's an atmospheric book set during a punishing heatwave in a confusing house full of strangers. And then came The Essex Serpent, which pushed Perry's name to the top of many prize lists, into the front of bookshop windows and into many, many readers' hands. People fell hard for the story of the mercifully widowed Cora, who heads into Essex in a spirit of particularly Victorian scientific curiosity. She finds rumours of a monster and an intense friendship with a local vicar. Now Sarah's latest book, Melmoth, introduces to a new kind of monster, female in form, terrifying, lonely and very, very old. Sarah, hello. Um, it's great to be in Norwich again with you. And um, I wondered if you could start by telling us a bit more about Melmoth, both the book and the character. Sure. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I... I remember a long, long time ago, really honestly when I was a child, probably about 12 or 13, being absolutely determined that one day I would write one of the great titular monsters, you know, like your Dracula, your Frankenstein, um, and feeling aggrieved that I hadn't thought of anything <laughs> as a child, and also feeling aggrieved that they were never female. So I've had this sort of 20 year long urge to write an eponymous villain who was female. Um, and then about 10 years ago for my PhD, I read Charles Robert Matchwin's Melmoth the Wanderer. And um, it's one of the most horrific <laughs> books I've ever read. I mean, it really, it really is abysmally horrific and violent and gratuitous and gruesome. But also an incredible work of Gothic satire. Um, and it draws on the ancient legend of the Wandering Jew, which is hundreds of years old. Um, and it creates this character of Melmoth, who has sold his soul to the devil. And Maturin's Melmoth is 150 years old, and he's seeking out people to um, exchange places with him. And it's, it's an incredible way of kind of examining human transgression and so on. And I thought, my God, what if I could write my Melmoth, and I could make my Melmoth a woman. And then I didn't do anything about it for a couple of years because I felt that it was too derivative. I wanted to invent my own monster and so on. And then I thought, you know, 
Shakespeare didn't invent King Lear. Bram Stoker didn't invent vampires. It's okay to build on books that have gone before. And once I'd given myself that permission, I, I began to flesh out the bones of my monster. And Maya Melmoth is 2,000 years old and she is a woman who is damned to witness humanity at its worst. And she's desperately lonely and she has just been wandering the world watching people. And she not only watches the great transgressions and atrocities of the world, but she also knows what you've been up to. Your petty cruelties, your small malices. And she's so lonely that she seeks out people who have done terrible things and she says, I know what you've done. And if everybody else knew they'd hate you, but I want you, come with me. And she says, take my hand, I've been so lonely. So that's my Melmoth. And so the book is set in contemporary Prague and a woman with a secret, a miserable woman, finds out about the legend of Melmoth the Witness and she starts to think that Melmoth is watching her. It does feel that Melmoth is watching her. Now, I actually read it in the summer um, and parts of the book, which we'll get to later, are, do take place in warmer climes, but even in this sort of snowy, wintry Prague, and I was sitting in a very overheated room in Walthamstow in <laughs> northeast London, um, but I could feel the chill. It's like Melmoth the witness, and she knows. And I think as a reader, you can bring yourself into that as when you think, my God, what have my transgressions been? Which is why the fear works so well. I mean, you do go through several different periods of history and look at people's personal transgressions as well, some of them are greater in scale than others, but um, it does bring your mind back to everything bad you've ever done. Yeah, good. <laughs> because <laughs> um, one of the things that I wanted to do is challenge this idea that some of us are good and some of us are bad. And when we see people doing wicked things, either politically on a grand scale or in, uh, on a smaller scale, we can think... God, man, that's a, that's a bad human being right there. Thank God I'm not like that. And actually, many of the great atrocities and transgressions across history have been, if not carried out, certainly facilitated by perfectly ordinary, decent people sitting in a civil servant's office signing some documents. And that's something that I really wanted the book to convey. And um, I wanted to do what the real Gothic does. So the real Gothic is about sensation. It's about how you feel. For the real Gothic to be present, then really the reader needs to feel as affected by events as the characters in the book. And so I really needed the reader to be as troubled as I could make them, um, to feel that Melmoth was watching them as well. So people have been really scared by it. My husband can't finish it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's probably one of the highest compliments you yeah, get. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's also quite pertinent for the time we're in at the moment, isn't it? This idea that it's, it's the functionaries, it's the passivity of everyday people yeah. that leads to terrible events going on. I think this is something that everyone's feeling in the world now. What do I do? And where yeah. do I stand? I, I started writing it or started, started f making... I had to work out who my Melmoth would be. I didn't want her to just be a wanderer or a Faustian um, character like Matrin's one. I wanted her to have her own distinctive characteristics. And round about the time of the publication of The Essex Serpent, the earth started to just go to hell in a handcart. There was the massacre at the nightclub in Orlando, which happened the night before the book launch for The Essex Serpent. ISIS was rampaging across the Middle East. Syrian toddlers were drowning in the Mediterranean and nobody cared. Um, and I nearly gave up writing because I thought, I'm fiddling while Rome burns. I could use such 
intellect as I have to do something useful with my time and here I am making up stuff and it felt self-indulgent and pointless and I had to persuade myself that books can be moral and they can have moral virtue and they can have political virtue and so Melmoth became the witness so that I could use the book to stand witness to what's happening so that's why so many of the manuscripts that the book presents to the reader deal with atrocities that are very evocative, deliberately very evocative of what's happening now. That's really interesting. That's, that's something I'm, I'm glad I've found out from you, actually, because now I recollect the book, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm glad to know it was deliberate. Um, to move on slightly, one of the other things I've always loved about all of your writing from Flood onwards uh, is you have such a strong sense of place, um, which I suppose harks back to what you were saying about gothic sensation mm. as well. There's a real sense of uh, both atmosphere and geography. Um, and two of the main locations in Melmoth are places you've actually lived. It's Prague, where you were a UNESCO writer in residence, and also the Philippines, yes. uh, which I discovered only this morning you won a prize for writing about back yes. in 2004. It was the <laughs> yeah. Shiva Naipaul Prize, which yeah. Hilary Mantel's also won as yeah. well. Um, I wondered if you could tell me how you know, these two different locations, how they both came to be part of the book as well. Um, I wanted to challenge myself and to move out of my comfort zones in writing. Place is always one of the first things that I think about. I treat place in my work as one of the characters and invest that much narrative importance in them. Um, and I'm a child of the flatlands and it's really easy for me to just carry on writing about East Anglia, where I'm most comfortable. But actually, if you use place as I do, if you keep using the same place, you risk retreading similar atmospheres and also similar narrative devices. So I have a tendency to drown people in an East Anglian body of water. <laughs> um, and, and I realised that, you know, that's really lazy and I needed to kind of drive myself forward. And I was also thinking about different kinds of the Gothic. So I'd written a kind of version of the nature Gothic, the Essex Gothic, the East Anglian Gothic. And I wanted to move over to a different form of Gothic. And the, the Gothic that you find in Eastern Europe is different. It is different. The, the statuary is different. The churches are different. It has, a, it has a different impact on me. And more importantly than that, I think, when I arrived in Prague as the UNESCO writer-in-residence, I discovered that history is very near the surface. It's really in the stones. It's very recent. The end of communism was 1989, and so some of the people that I met vividly remembered communist rule. Um, there are the stumble stones, which you get in, in Germany and in other European countries as well, where cobblestones have been replaced with brass plaques the size of a cobblestone outside apartments where people were taken to the concentration camps, and it will say the, the, day, the day they were born and the day they were murdered. Um, and they're there, they're in the street. And I visited Terezin, the concentration camp, and I discovered that um, when the Jewish people were removed from the concentration camp, it was then filled with the German-speaking Czechs, and that there had been an ethnic cleansing of Germans out of Czechoslovakia, which nobody talks about. Um, and then I wanted to write about the Philippines because I'd been there. And I, I do feel slightly awkward about it because the Philippines that I knew 
was 20 years ago now, almost 20 years ago. I was 21, I'd never been abroad before, and I arrived in effectively a slum, sort of shanty town. So I had to make sure that when I wrote about the Philippines, I was very much writing from the point of view of who I had been then. So that part of the manuscript is written or recalled by someone who was the age I was visiting Manila to do the same things that I did in the period that I did because I'm not equipped to write about modern Manila from the point of view of a Filipino. So there was a, there was a long internal tussle about the ethics of writing about foreign places. Um, yeah. So that's why I used them both. And as you say, again, I think what came across to me from the sections in Manila was a real sense of tropical Gothic. Yes. With the heat being used yeah. and, um, in the same way that you can get wonderful Australian Gothic. There is this wonderful kind of tropical Gothic that yes. comes through in that. Yeah, yeah. It's a very different. It's, it's a, the, that sensation of everything being a little off being a little uncanny, being a little troubling can be found in all sorts of places. And because the Gothic tradition is so rooted in British and Irish fiction, obviously later on in American fiction too, we associated it with Romanesque cathedrals and crypts and, and all of the rest of it. Um, but yeah, that same sensation can be evoked by a window, a, a sort of turning ceiling fan and the, the intense heat that can have a similar impact. So that's the contemporary culture of writing and knowledge, but it obviously goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And I was so thrilled to find out about Marjorie Kemp, who, you know, that's the first, really the first autobiography in English, Julian of Norwich, the first published book by a woman in English, Thomas Brown, who coined so much of our contemporary language. Um, and now you can barely cross the road without bumping into a book of win or a Nobel laureate. It's fantastic. A lot of it is to do with the cheap rent, I think. It's also a lovely city. Um, and right in the middle of it is your favourite independent bookshop, which is the Book Hive. Yeah. Um, could you tell me why you love the Book Hive so much? Oh, God, I just have such an affection for it, partly because it's where I've launched all of my books and I'm going to be launching Melmoth there in October. And... They're so welcoming. So you can, when you walk onto the threshold, your eyes almost immediately drawn to the desk, which kind of faces out towards you. And so you walk in and someone says hello almost every time. Um, and they have everything. So it's a lot, it's a bit of a TARDIS. It's a lot bigger than it seems. And if they don't have it, then they'll get it and text you the next morning. Uh, there's a loo. <laughs> Very important. Um, they have events which are so generous to writers and readers. So I, I hosted an event last night with Damon Young, who's an Australian philosopher who's written this incredible book on um, the art of reading. So on about how you can discipline yourself in the virtues of reading and then you can learn to read well. And, um, you know, there were 30 people there having a huge debate about you know, the, the various virtues of reading, while, you know, bottles of San Mig were passed around by the, the shopkeeper, Henry's, uh, the owner, Henry. Um, and it's also, this is a very Norwich thing. It has its own press, Propolis. Um, and before that, it was involved with galley beggars. So you just have this feeling that Henry and his staff and the building are like this kind of crucible bubbling away, serving everyone from 
kids coming in to go and shop in their amazing children's section, to writers walking in the manuscript that no one else wants to publish. And then, you know, a year later, Henry's produced this beautiful proof for Propolis. It's just extraordinary. And it has a, a writing room above it where occasionally Margaret Atwood will kind of sit and do some work. So, you know, it's just, it's everything that an independent bookstore could be and on their desk they have at the moment a display where the booksellers display the book that they're reading it says I'm currently reading this ask me about it so you can go in and say tell me about this book you're reading and it's I, for me it's like a time machine because I launched After Me Comes the Flood which was by no stretch of the imagination an anticipated book apart from by my wonderful publishers but nobody else really cared and um, <laughs> and Henry launched it at at the book hive when you know maybe two dozen people came um and then it launched the essex serpent and then i'll be going back for melmoth and it's you know it's that precious thing that you have with some people in my case my agent and my publisher in the book hive having been there through the whole journey and lending a sense of kind of continuity and stability and affection to your work so i feel very strongly about them Good stuff. It's um, a shop I'm very keen on myself as well. Now, you have also picked up some of your favourite books from I the book hive. Um, picked them up last night. <laughs> I was wondering if you, the first one you could tell me about is the book that you recommend to people most. Um, and uh, it's actually one I don't know much about at all. So I want you to sell it to me as why you would recommend uh, JL Carr's A Month in the Country. I would say with no breath of exaggeration that anyone who doesn't like this book should be shot against a wall if you don't like this book you don't like reading and should be deprived of all future literature so it's a novella by J.L. Carr which you can read in the length of time it takes to really enjoy a large glass of wine and it is perfect in every respect the prose is so exquisite as to be breathtaking without ever going in for any vulgar display or fireworks. There is a sense that every last syllable has been agonised over and perfectly placed. And it is the story of a shell-shocked soldier after the First World War who is employed to uncover and restore a fresco in a country church. He meets another man who is similarly haunted by the war. He meets the vicar's wife and it's a reflection. It, it is drenched in melancholy. And the reason it's such an extraordinary achievement is that all of the pity and the horror of the Great War is condensed into a few days in the English countryside. And it's, it, is, it is perfect, it's objectively a perfect piece of work. And I buy it for people constantly. Um, and quite often say, if you if you don't like it, then you should be hung, drawn and quartered. Well, even without the threats of physical violence, I think <laughs> I think you've sold me. And I will be when we leave the Writers' Centre, I will be heading to the book hive to so get my pleased. own copy. Now I'm completely sold on that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we've also asked you if there's a book that people are surprised you really love. Um, it's actually from a series I also really love as well. I've read a lot of these, which is uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. And you've picked Guards, Guards. Yes. Uh, which is about the city watch in the capital city, the Discworld's capital city of Ankh-Morpork. Yes, I've always read right. it as. Yes, yes. yeah. Um, so I have, a, so, I have so much to say about, about this book. When I was a child... I was the most broad and voracious reader and I and as a young person and I didn't really appreciate that books could be used as social capital it was it was a very new idea to me that you wouldn't admit you know the idea of a guilty pleasure was completely alien because I was given largely speaking enormous amount of free reign as a child there wasn't contemporary literature in the house but also I wasn't really stopped from reading anything so when I was sort of 13 or 14 I would read uh, some Henry James and some Agatha Christie and some Terry Pratchett and then I would read some Shakespeare you know and it was just all books and then when I did an MA, I suddenly was confronted with the idea that there were books that people wouldn't admit to reading or would never read because it would compromise their status as a thoughtful, bookish, artistic person. And I responded to this by obnoxiously reading Discworld novels in front of people. <laughs> um, until the death of Sir Terry Brackett's 
GNU, close brackets, which all Discworld fans will understand. Um, he was the only author that I unfailingly bought in hardback on publication day. Or they were often published in October. My husband would give me one on my birthday. And when he died, I let out such a sort of yell of grief that my poor husband thought something awful had happened and ran upstairs and just found me collapsed sobbing on the computer. I invested so much love in Terry Pratchett and so much love in his works. He was described by A.S. Byatt as being the Dickens of the 20th century. And I really think that that is um, such a perfect description of his ability to conjure up a vast, teeming city with all the layers of class and underclass and upper class, all human frailty and folly and foible, love, despair, postal services, trains, magic, religion. It's, it, everything is in there. And also to be howlingly funny and um, to be bitterly satirical about a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so in my personal growth from being a biblical fundamentalist to some kind of extremely liberal hippie Christian, um, Terry Pratchett was really important to me because some of his books are really savage about organised religion and I realised sort of what he was doing and what he was saying. I've I could have chosen so many of them. I've chosen Guards, Guards because this is the introduction of, of the full book about the Night Watch. And it introduces Captain Sam Vimes, who is lying on the cobblestones, drunk, in love with the city and despising the city at the same time. And it introduces Sybil, this kind of stout English type woman who collects and rears dragons. And it's just perfect. It's just perfect. And I, I will never pretend to only read grand intellectual books and the more people expect me to the more likely I am to read Terry Pratchett at them <laughs> and I think if you and you know I don't think you should necessarily be shot if you don't like Terry Pratchett because some people don't like fantasy but I would I would think you were an odd fish if you didn't it's very joyful as well as being very biting, as you say. Actually, Guards, Guards features one of my favourite Discworld characters, which is the university librarian. Oh, God, Ook. Exactly, Ook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who exactly. is just a large orangutan who yeah. hides bananas in this four-dimensional library yeah, yeah. and is the only person who knows where anything is. And I've never heard... Only says the word ook in different ways, That's but right. it's deployed in such a way that a, a random ook can be the saddest or the funniest line in the book. Exactly. I love yeah. the librarian. Yeah, me too. And there's the fondness that one feels for these characters is so visceral and so real. Um, and I don't think I've ever grieved the loss of a famous person I've never met in the way that I grieved the loss of Terry Pratchett. Um, have you read The Shepherd's Crown, the last one? No, I haven't yet. It's, a, it's like really, to... it's a real eulogy. And there is a death of a very beloved character in it, which is also really about the death of Pratchett, who knew, you know, he was very ill. Um, and it's, it's heartrending and hilarious. And so few people could pull it off. And I'm devastated that there'll be no more. I really am. I, I, I'm still, still grieving for it. And shortly after he died, you know the thing where um, 
there's a, a, a sort of semaphore system. And if you put GNU after in, in the disc world, then a name will go back and forth forever. Soon after he died, someone invented a widget that you can embed into your emails that will always put Terry Pratchett's name invisibly in the bottom of your emails. And that way his name is constantly going round and round and round the world, like in the clack system in the disc world. So all of my emails, every time I email has Terry Pratchett's name in it. I love that. What a brilliant invention. So for your non-fiction choice, there's something that you haven't read yet, which is uh, Lucy Inglis' Milk of Paradise, which came out in August. Um, and it's her history of opium and the opium trade. And she's famous for her history of Georgian London, isn't she? But um, what is it that attracts you to Milk of Paradise? I followed, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but when I was, I followed Lucy a lot. And, and in her tweets, she's capable of summoning up enormous um, storytelling abilities about her sort of funny life in France and her family and she can really break your heart in 140 characters and I've watched her over the years because it's taken a long time to work on this I've watched her develop this book and talk about it so I've always wanted to read it always been very invested in seeing her years of work come to fruition and then last year, um, I had a severe spinal injury and had to have spinal surgery um, and suffered abysmal pain and was reliant on very strong medication, including opiates, for a long time. And Melmoth was written under the influence of a combination of several drugs. And I am now fascinated by pain by the alleviation of pain and by the side effects of the alleviation of pain and what they do. Um, and I discovered in my reading and in my research for an essay I'm writing about pain and, and pain control, many of the people we think of as being drug addicts became that way because of pain. So Coleridge, for example, had a very bad knee and he was dependent on the Kendall Black Drop, which was a sort of potion of treacle and laudanum and heroin. And, you know, that's how, you know, that's how he became able to sort of access these dreamlike states was because he suffered. Um, Kurt Cobain had a twisted bowel, I think, or some sort of terrible stomach problem. And that's how he ended up dependent on painkillers. So... I'm fascinated now, I always was, but I'm particularly fascinated now by medicine, suffering, pain and the alleviation of pain. Um, and I'm just really looking forward to both the erudition and the storytelling that I think is very much Lucy's great skill, but also what it will mean to me to read more about you know, the medicines that I took and the effect that they can have and how they were developed. So, yeah. Actually, as well, I was thinking, as you were saying, with Melmoth holding witness to contemporary events, you know, there's such uh, a spike in opiate addiction at the moment, particularly mm -hmm. in the United States, yeah. and with fentanyl being such a strong yeah. distillation of it, it seems like a very kind of appropriate time for yeah. a history of that form of drug to yeah. come out as well. I am... Um... I was very lucky to have a friend called Sam Guglani, who's a writer and an oncologist, and he gave me some advice on the medical aspects of, um, of Melmoth. And he knew that I'd suffered and he knew that I'd taken quite a lot of pain and I was, uh, that I'd taken a lot of painkillers. And um, I texted him in a hurry and said, Sam, 
what are the effects of a fentanyl overdose? <laughs> Forgetting that, of course, he might think that I'd, you know, taken to overdosing on fentanyl and he was on the wards of a cancer hospital and he dashed out. Are you all right? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's for the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, I can't wait. And I think it will be, I think it might be quite distressing to read in some ways, but it looks wonderful. So without wanting to do a terrible kind of uh, regional news segue, um, <laughs> on to another kind of distressing <laughs> book, Sarah, yeah. um, which is your children's book classic yes. choice, uh, which is a, a proper, proper children's book classic. It's The Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett. I adored this book and still do. I haven't read it for 20 years, probably. And now that I have another copy, I'm probably going to go home and read it. So it's, it features a child called Sarah, which is very appealing to me. Um, you know, as a child, when there's a character in a book who has your name, you just become so invested in it. And it is the story of a terribly, terribly indulged and spoilt child who is sent away to Miss Minchin's boarding school, sent away from India. And she is very, very wealthy, very beautiful, wears these lovely dresses, has this incredible doll, and she's treated as a little princess. And she's held up to all of the other girls in the school as the example of how beautiful and wealthy a little girl can be. And then her father dies and all his money goes with him. And Sarah is banished to the attic where she is put to work as a maid and lives in abject poverty. But she creates out of her poverty the most delightful home for herself and for the maid that she works with. There's a tiny mouse that she looks after. She contrives to hold tiny, tiny tea parties. And then there's one of the most extraordinary scenes in fiction where after a heartbreaking, grief-stricken day of endless hard work and scrubbing, she toils her way up to this barren, freezing cold attic and finds that someone has turned it into a paradise. And there's drapery and chocolates and candles and flowers and amazing food. And she doesn't know who could have done such a thing. Um, and I just couldn't get enough of it. Everything about it appealed to me. Um, the trajectory of wealth to poverty and back up to wealth again, but a different kind of wealth. And um, the love she learns to have for outcasts and poor people. Um, it's just amazing. And this edition, this Wordsworth Classics edition, makes it look like much more of a children's book than it is. It has a, an illustration on the front that looks like it's going to have sort of 26-point type and illustrations. So <laughs> it is actually, as Frances Hodgson Burnett did, you know, well-written and um, insightful and beautiful. I was thinking about this, actually, when you recommended it. Um, this is quite... A lot, and they're all books I love as well, but um, of books for young girls, about other young girls overcoming adversity, and whether that's Little House on the Prairie yes. or Anne of Green Gables yeah. or, you know, also by the same or author, Secret Garden. Secret Garden. Yeah. Um, there's a real, what Katie did, there's a real string of these kind of plucky young women in hard circumstances yes. books. Yeah. Um, and I love them because they're so practical as well. Absolutely, yeah. And they will always show you some little trick um, or some means of enjoying yourself. And I just, it's very good training for a young person to read that kind of thing, I think. I still read some of them when I need to actually properly do the housework because it, <laughs> yes. it sounds like there might be some joy in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you read The Long Hard Winter, which is my favourite one of the Little House on the Prairie books, you suddenly did get 
absolutely determined to bustle about and pickle vegetables to see you through the hard times. It's really, yeah. And it is, it is kind of feminine. Um, and I suppose one could do a backwards glance and think, you know, this is all very kind of entrenched in female roles. But um, I always took it as very, um, yeah, very exciting. Yes, if the apocalypse comes and I survive, it will be entirely down to Laura Ingalls Wilder. I completely, completely agree with you, yeah. Um, and onto your final choice, actually, which is a book that you've described as a mood-changing book, which is a lovely phrase. Um, it's another one of my own deeply, deeply loved favourites. Um, and I think it starts with one of the most engaging first lines in British literature, which is, I write this sitting on the kitchen sink. Yes. It's up there with um, last night I dreamed I went to it Mandalay is. again. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So the book we're talking about, if you haven't already got it from the first line, is Dodie Smith's I Capture the Castle. Um, I read this by mistake. So um, the, the, the main thing that I would avoid now and when I was young was anything that is even vaguely romantic fiction. It's the only books I, mean, I will read anything, but I just don't care about people falling in love. Never have, never will. Um, and so when I picked this up, I would have been about 13 and I was reading loads of kind of military type battles, historical novels where castles fell. And it said I capture the castle. And I just read Simon the Cold Heart by Georgette Heyer, which is one of her more kind of military and silly uh, books, which kind of historical romance, but with enough fighting in it to, to not quite count. Um, and this was on the school bookshelves. And I honestly thought it was going to be a military thing where, you know, maybe in 1500, some queen was holding out against an opposing force. Started reading it and realised immediately it was nothing of the kind. Um, and it's perfect. Um, I often buy it for people when they're unhappy because it is a mood changing book. It's very, very difficult to remain in a temper when you're with the Mortmain family. So it was once described by a critic as the diary of a girl poised between childhood and adultery, which is a really good way of looking at it. So it's the diary of Cassandra Mortmain who lives with her poverty, like, artistically poverty-stricken family in a tumble-down Suffolk castle. Her father wrote this extraordinary book and then went to prison for lunging at his wife with a bread knife and is now shutting himself away and refusing to write. And his amazing step, uh, his amazing second wife, Topaz, is this artist's model who just walks around naked all the time looking fantastic. And Cassandra has a sister called Rose who's incredibly beautiful and knows she is. Um, and they all live together in sort of relative happiness and peace, but in abject poverty. And then two young American men turn up and they own the castle. And the girls quickly realise that the way out of poverty is for one of them to hook one of these young men. And it's just the most extraordinary combination of childhood growth into maturity, farce, social comedy, um, it just has everything in it really and and at the moment I think of that opening word line I write this sitting in the kitchen sink you're just transported it is magically transporting isn't it there's there's so much about it that you can't ever forget once you've read it there's little scenes like Cassandra decides to dye all her clothes green and she sits in an enamel bathtub where she's been dyeing these clothes green and, and the water is still a bit green and she's slightly green herself. Um, they have a dressmaker's dolly 
called Miss Daisy, I think. Can't yes. remember what she's called. Um, and she's they do her like a country barmaid, don't they? That's she gives right. advice yeah. to them. Yeah. Um, so they give her a voice and she tells them their stories and grow reading it now as a writer i've read it probably half a dozen times and you read it again and start to sympathize particularly in my case with the father who wrote this successful book and has had writer's block ever since so they shut him up in this tower and lower his provisions down in a basket he's not allowed out until he's written another book um yeah it's extraordinary i think the nhs should prescribe it not for full depression but for mild lifting lifting this is the one you want. It gives you this lovely insight into kind of this bohemian 1930s-ness as yeah. well, because he's very clearly, the father's very clearly written this kind of amazingly structural, modernist novel. Yes. Um, All compiled out of crosswords or something, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And um, then, but then you get the kind of bustling American lady who likes to attend lectures and the sort of Bauhaus dressed photographer. Oh, who preys on the very, very handsome young country boy who who can't believe that people are taking him up to London in a cab to be photographed. And Cassandra's a bit wary of this sort of um, woman with her black clothes and strident bearing. The sharp bob and her angular yes, jewellery. Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. I think it's wonderful. Um, Sarah, it's been brilliant having you here to talk. Thank and you. it's been brilliant coming up to Norwich to visit you as well. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Today's Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Cannon Gate Books and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. Our guest today has been Sarah Perry, whose novel Melmoth is published by Serpent's Tale. And special thanks this time to the National Centre for Writing in Norwich for hosting today's recording. To see the full podcast listing, visit acast.com forward slash readlikearwriter and we'd love to hear what you think, so do tweet us at readlikeapod.com.